I always wanted a life of adventure and to see John Wayne riding a horse. I wanted to be a cowboy. I wanted to be out there chasing bad guys. I want, that's what I wanted. Yeah. Couldn't think anything better in the world. Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode 18 of My Way. This is part one of an unexpected conversation with a visitor to Grayton. For those of you who don't know this town, it's not exactly a raging metropolis, so I'm always curious about people who just pass through here for one reason or another. And go figure, this guy has had a pretty interesting life. Without saying too much more, I give you Tommy Sendrick. Go ahead and just introduce yourself and sort of how you identify yourself. Okay. I'm Tommy Sendrick. I am from Mount Airy, Maryland. I'm a retired special agent with the Drug Enforcement Administration, and I am currently working for Focus Conservation Solutions. I was born, probably one of the few people actually born in Washington, D.C., and I was raised outside of Washington, D.C. in Laurel, Maryland, August 25th, 1967. What's your first memory? My mom crying when Richard Nixon was impeached and leaving office. Really? Yes. I remember watching it because it disturbed me how much... Uh, so how old were you? I'm trying to think. The year is that 73, yeah. 74? 73, 74. 74, yeah. So I remember that. And then the other memory was the Redskins playing in the Super Bowl in 1973. Huh. And on that note, what are some standout childhood memories that come to the surface? That come to the surface. I guess playing football for the Laurel Boys and Girls Club at five years old when the other kids were all older than me and getting the opportunity to play, which would never happen today because there'd be too much liability involved. Mm -hmm. Um, But back then they just said, if he's willing to play, we'll throw the pads on him and let him give it a shot. My best friend, Trace Ashton, who we used to be rather mischievous boys together and stealing Christmas lights off all the trees one year (laughs) and getting caught and my parents walking us around and having to put light bulbs back in people's trees. What were you going to do with the lights? We were saving them until the 4th of July to throw them all up in the air and make loud sounds. (laughs) Oh, the logic of a child. Yes, yes. Tell me about the family that you grew up with. Okay, I grew up in, I would say your traditional family, especially for the area I was in. Okay, Laurel was a bedroom community for the U.S. National Security Agency. My father worked for the National Security Agency. He was the most brilliant man you'd probably ever meet. He came from immigrant parents. My grandparents were born in Croatia and came here following the murder of my great-grandmother's brothers by Hitler. Nine of her brothers were murdered. My grandfather came over. He was seven. He learned the language, learned English, and kind of made his way. 
Um, my dad was the first generation born in the United States. I was the second. My father was valedictorian of his senior class. He went to the University of Pittsburgh on a ROTC scholarship. He was the Brigadier General of Arnold Air. Um, he was a mathematics genius. He was studied to be a lawyer for a while, and then he decided, no, he liked mathematics better. And he went and got his um, master's degree in mathematics. But he ended up at NSA, and it was a big deal back then working for the government. My grandparents, of course, thought my dad was on a first-name basis with whatever president was in power. You know, <laughs> My mom came from a, another blue-collar background, Baltimore City. My grandfather was a crane operator for Armco Steel in the Merchant Marines. Both my grandfathers, extremely tough, extremely hard men. Good men, nice men, but hard men. My mom went to work for NSA at 18 years old, right out of high school. She was secretary, met my father. They, my dad was 27, my mom was 22, and they got married. My dad so fed up with everybody, how they were going to tell him to get married. They went and eloped at the local Catholic church in the town I ended up growing up in. Wow. Siblings? I have a sister that I'm, we got along well as a kid, but I'm estranged from. We're very different people. Younger, um, older? Younger. Mm-hmm. Well, she's very successful. She's very bright. We're just kind of not the very same different. type of people. Yeah, I get that. Did you have any heroes or role models growing up? John Wayne. <laughs> right. Probably is so cliche, but um, I grew up watching John Wayne movies. I love John Wayne. I wanted to be John Wayne. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's what's wrong today. We don't have more people like John Wayne. My favorite mm-hmm. country song is by Willie Nelson. It says, come back, Jesus, come back, Jesus. And along the way, bring John Wayne. You know, and I, I always wanted a life of adventure and to see John Wayne riding a horse. I wanted to be a cowboy. I wanted to be out there chasing bad guys. I want, that's what I wanted. Couldn't think of anything better in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, okay. and, pro, and, and to this day, I still watch all the John Wayne movies. So I went to uh, St. John's College High School in Washington, D.C., private all-boy Catholic military school. I had the best teachers in the world. My teacher, Mr. Grant at St. John's, he realized I was not a student who really liked the academic side of things. And to stimulate my imagination, he walked into class one day and he handed me the book, The Born Identity. And I started reading, and I, I kind of wanted to become Jason Bourne. That was my next life, you know. I wanted that life of adventure, and I thought, wow, what's out there? And how exciting someone's life could be. I never wanted to have a nine-to-five job. I never. I couldn't even imagine it. And then Mr. Donellan in my English class. We were reading like every every other high schooler, Catcher in a Rye. Right. Right. I still need to read that. Yeah, oh, I love it. I just read it again recently. So I read it and I loved it. And we would talk about books and writing, and he would have you write papers, and your paper was supposed to be three pages long, no more, no less. If it was more, you were bullshitting him, he said, and if it was less, you didn't put enough time in. Right. You know, and he was just a really great guy. And he was another one who recognized the fact that I didn't like school. I didn't like the confines. I didn't like authority. 
and he brought me in the Boys of Summer from the Brooklyn Dodgers. I think it was 1942, you know, about their, their I, I probably have the year wrong, but it was about the Brooklyn Dodgers, Pee Wee Reese, Jackie Robinson. And he just said, read this. You, you need to read. You need to get your imagination going. And he goes, I don't know what you're going to do. He said, but one day you're going to write. You're going to mm. create. He goes, you're too creative not to. Mm. And I just started laughing. I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, yeah. I, had to, I was a 14-year-old boy. Yeah, and St. John's was a unique place because it was all boys. It was Roman Catholic. You were taught by the Christian brothers. And it was military. We wore military uniforms every day. We had drill twice a week, two to three times a week. Mm-hmm. You had sergeants, retired sergeants there, some active. They gave you examples of how to behave. They didn't just tell you how to behave. At school, they behave that way too. And for me, what it was is it, it was a continuation of my life. So I always tell people I was raised by my parents. I was raised by St. John's. And then I was raised by the police departments and the DEA. Hmm. Did you find that the structure of a military school worked for you? It didn't. It didn't. I always laugh because the thing is, is what it taught me how to be was a man. Okay, which I think is sadly lacking today. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't want your te- parents down there. If you had a problem, you came to them and you handled it as an adult. Your parents could come, but that was not the first line of response. Mm-hmm. The first line of response was you trying to handle the situation. We did drill with guns. Now they weren't usable, the guns we used for drill, but we had guns. It was a male-dominated culture. Um, we had female teachers, okay, and they were nice, and they were great, but it was a male-dominated culture, mm-hmm. and it was about discipline, and the motto of the school was, at the time, I'll never forget, was building boys is better than mending men, hmm. and I think, to me, that's something that could be used today. They taught self-responsibility. Wow. Um, if it happened, it was on your watch. It was your fault. No excuses. I had problems with a lot of people, but that was because with the teachers, I would fight with them and argue with them, but I I never accepted authority because at home I was always taught, no, you don't just do what people say. Right. Give me a reason. I'm not running right. through a wall just because you say run through the wall. Yeah, that's always my, I was always curious about that with military school. Obviously, I mean, I've never been to military school, but I always thought, are they teaching them how to fall in line as well as critical thinking skills so they can think on their own and they can make decisions independently of others and say, okay, yeah, I'm going with the group on this one, but it's because I believe that this is what we should, should be doing or to be able to say, this doesn't feel right to me and to be able to think on, on their own. St. John's was fortunate. It was a place where they taught critical thinking skills. Mm-hmm. They taught you to write critically. They taught you to think critically. Mm-hmm. They taught because the the although you had teachers there, the military aspect of the school was run by the students. So they would question the students along the way too. So you couldn't. It wouldn't be just because the sergeant, you know, sergeant major said so. It would be because you had discussed it with the sergeant major, and there was the Christian brother aspect in there, mm. and they didn't necessarily always fall in line with the military aspect of it. And you had civilian teachers in there. Right. So it struck a balance and it worked for me. Right. I needed it. It was, it was home. It was home like my home was. 
so <laughs> so this is also a loaded question. Um, oh what do you feel like is different about growing up today than growing up when you grew up? A lot in that I see, I, I watch my kids with their phones. I watch other kids with phones. We didn't have that. Um, me and my best friend Trace, we would go fishing up at Doc Smith's Pond. I'll never forget. He was a vet. Um, they had owned all this land where our houses were built at one time. It was one of the nicest old guys you ever meet. Kind of looked like Colonel Sanders. Oh my gosh. Um, he would take you out back, show you his barn, and show you all the old wagons in it. Um, and you would go up and catch bass on his pond or catch bluegill. Um, the neighborhood kids, we all kind of, we played football, basketball, or baseball, depending on whatever season it was. we walk the creek and go to the elementary school we just kind of had adventures and and it was okay and your parents if it was winter and it was snowing they'd throw you outside because they didn't want you inside and you weren't supposed to come back in until five o'clock at night but everybody watched out for everybody's kids my neighborhood now with my kids i think it's kind of like that but it's nowhere near what it was when i was a child yeah all our parents, where I grew up, were transplants from Pennsylvania mostly, but they were transplants from other places. So we were all kind of in the same boat. Our parents had taken that next step not to stay in the coal mines of West Virginia or Pittsburgh mm -hmm. or the steel mills and try a different life. It was just a, a true sense of what community is, and yeah. that's what I think is lacking today. And so talk, uh, talk a little bit about your family, your wife, your girls. So I'm married to a saint, um, <laughs> Gina. That's she, on the record. That's it. Well, she is. She <laughs> is. Um, and I have two extremely smart, beautiful daughters. And we have horses. And one of the things my wife and I decided we were going to make a concerted effort. And that became a part of our lives with the horses. Reason being, my girls would rather spend time with the horses than they would be hanging out and getting involved in girl stuff. Yes, they use a phone and the computer, but they don't play video games. They ride their horses. Um, they work at the barn. They compete. We, we really went out of our way to create that kind of lifestyle. I'm fortunate not to have had some of the problems that I've witnessed other neighbors that they've had to deal with with their children i give credit mostly to that to my wife because i was always working or not always working but working a lot um she worked but she ran the house yeah and she ran those girls this episode of my way has been brought to you by the ghost of john wayne whenever you're feeling iconic remember john wayne Though he's been gone for nearly 40 years, the spirit of Marion Mitchell Morrison, a.k.a. John Wayne, or the Duke, lives on. In a twist of fate, he was injured while in college, which shut the door on his football career, but opened a window to his destiny. As America was in the throes of the Great Depression, he looked for work in local film studios in California. After working as a prop man and landing a few bit roles, he got his first starring role in The Big Trail in 1930. Marion Morrison shortened his name from six syllables to two, and John Wayne, the movie star, was born. Known for his roles as the quintessential cowboy, he was known for his tough, manly one-liners like, 
Out here, due process is a bullet. And, young fella, if you're looking for trouble, I'll accommodate you. Over the next 50 years, he worked on over 170 films, won an Oscar, got divorced and remarried, fathered seven children, smoked six packs of unfiltered camels a day, survived lung cancer, and an assassination attempt by Joseph Stalin. He even played a role in getting the U.S. to ratify the Panama Canal treaties before finally succumbing to stomach cancer in 1979. The Ghost of John Wayne. Life is tough, but it's tougher if you're stupid. Okay, so talk about your life path that led to you coming to Grayton. Okay. Start at the beginning. Start at the beginning. So I graduated college, and of course, like everybody else, it's what am I going to do, right? And I... I knew I always wanted to be a cop. I, I would go down these adventurous routes, like I wanted to be a football player, or I, I'm going to go be a strength coach with the uh, college. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do that. But reality was, I knew I was going to be a cop, and I knew I would eventually end up at some three-letter agency. It's what my parents did. It's what I knew. And I think somehow that just kind of transfers. Born in 1967, so I was raised in the 80s. And, of course, Don Johnson and Miami Vice was... Love that show. I did, too. And Tubbs, so, Tubbs was my guy. Tubbs was your guy. <laughs> um, but, I mean, Sonny Crockett. Sonny Crockett was my man. <laughs> I, 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 In fact, you know, I, I don't know a guy who didn't have the loafers and the pants and right. have the blue shirt with the jacket as your dress clothes during the 80s, you know? <laughs> But there were certain things that hit me and rang a bell when I was young. There were three murders of police officers. One was a Baltimore City police officer, Marty Ward, who was murdered in the line of duty, um, doing undercover. I remember the news, and I was like, I need to do this job. Then there was another murder, the murder of Trooper Ted Wolf. Was a Maryland state trooper killed on the side of I-95 during a traffic stop. My neighbor, who was a Howard County police officer at the time, he knew Ted Wolf, and I just remember watching him just be upset and, and the tragedy of it all, and I was like, I need to do that job. And then the last one was DEA agent Kiki Camarena, who in Narcos, they refer to him as Jesus Christ because he died for all of us so that wow. we wouldn't have to die. And I remember watching the show, um, Drug Wars, and I read the book. It was by Elaine Shannon, and the, sh the movie was done by Michael Mann, which is kind of funny because Michael Mann did Miami Vice too. And I was like, I need to go to the DEA. And I had the feeling that the drug world, you know, you go, oh, it's a scourge. I wanted to make a difference. Yeah, I guess I wanted to make a difference. But I wanted that exciting kind of life. Everybody goes, oh, I want to make a difference. I think that's cliche. I think that's a bit dishonest. Reality is, I think guys who want to be cops and want to be narcotics agents or want to go in the military and the special forces, yeah, they want to do it to do the right thing, but they want to live a life of adventure. 
That's what we mm-hmm. all want. Good or bad, it's exciting. Sure, yeah. sure. And there's a lot of good and bad that comes with it. Right. You see a lot of good and you see a lot of bad. So I applied to three police departments. That was it. I applied to the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. I applied to the Baltimore City Police Department. And I applied to Metro-Dade Police Department where Sonny Crockett. So all quiet little towns. All quiet little towns, right. Um, (laughs) I was hired by the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. And I belonged. I knew when I got there, I belonged. As soon as I hit the street, it was like I was meant to do this. You were in your element. Yeah. It was just I, I, I walked a one block by one block area that was one of the most heinous violent areas in the in the country at the time, Potomac Gardens, Washington, D.C., the little Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States, who everybody talks about the violence today. Please, we had 500 murders a year. We were always 450 to 500. Wow. Murder Capital USA. Chicago, please. It was it was violent beyond violent. But as a 22, 23-year-old kid, you're running up and down the streets chasing bad guys. You run from calls that'll range from robbery in progress, rape in progress, shooting just occurred. And the manicness of it all fit me. Because as I've learned... Now, not knowing men, my brain, my brain type, and I talk to a guy a lot about this. I have the ability to jump from A to F, back to B, over to Z. I did not need things in logical order. Hmm. So it just fit me. It fit. It was great. Then I left there. Then I went to work in Laurel, Maryland, my hometown. I applied for the Laurel Police Department. Uh, one of the guys I knew in D.C. said, oh, my brother's a lieutenant there. You ought to give him a call and go fill out an application, which I did. And Billy Farrell was the lieutenant, really good guy. And I got hired, and he said, straight to narcotics for you. Well, and I'll, get, I'll take a step back. So I wanted to go to narcotics when I was in Washington, D.C., but mm-hmm. I couldn't. I had to wait for a white male to leave so that me as a white male could replace that white male. Really? Yes. Um, there were unwritten rules. Everybody always sits there and says, oh, there's no there's no policies in place. That's all bullshit, okay? If a black male left, a black male could fill that spot. If mm-hmm. a white male left, a white male could fill that spot. But a black male couldn't leave and be filled by a white male. And what about women during this time? Very few women. Uh-huh. There were some women in narcotics, yeah. but women were a different entity altogether mm-hmm. in that world. And I really didn't have a whole lot of experience with that. I just knew I couldn't get to where I wanted to get because right. of how things worked. Yeah. And I'll give you another example. When I applied for D.C. police, I took the test at Balu High School, which is in, was in the middle of uh, a horrendous area of D.C. And I go down there and I take the test and... and what I learned afterwards was that if you were a white male to pass the test, you had to score 70%. If you were a black male, you could score 50%. Really? Yes. Yes. Huh. And if you were from D.C., you were going to get hired faster than if you were not from Washington, D.C. Because they wanted to give jobs right. to the citizens of the District of Columbia. Yeah. 
So local preference. Local preference, but that stems the best quality of candidates, and that happens a lot. And that's happening in police departments still today. That still happens today. They um, they they want they give preference to people not based on their abilities to do their jobs. They right. give preference to people based on color, gender, and things like that. Yeah. And I don't know if I agree with it or disagree with it. Yeah. I just know that as a citizen, I would rather have the best guys being cops protecting me or the best people being firemen or the best right. people being on the ambulance. I don't care if they're black, white, purple, male, green, female, Chinese, male, yeah. female. Right. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. I just want the best one who's going to show up and save my life. So I went to Laurel and I, I worked with a partner, black belt partner, Jimmy Brooks. Mm-hmm. He was my cover. And it was kind of funny because they used to sit there and say, oh, the black guys all do all the undercover, like in a lot of the places. Jimmy didn't do the undercover. Tommy did the undercover. Jimmy would help me on occasion, but every knew, everybody knew Officer Brooks. He couldn't do undercover, but I did. And I could be a chameleon and walk within the white trash community to the suburban community to the black community didn't matter it was perfectly comfortable and i understood that basically as long as you had money somebody will sell you drugs yeah so what was your first sort of undercover gig i was doing street buys mm-hmm. i would go out and buy hundred dollar bags of crack were you nervous the first time no nope. no nope nope loved it loved it couldn't wait like Completely in your element. Completely. Like you were born to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It felt like that's where I belonged. You know, it, it's a it's a progression too. I didn't know anything about buying what they called weight, moving up and buying more drugs. I didn't mm-hmm. understand it. But the education comes fast. So as you learn, then you start negotiating because you want to make the bigger bust. Mm-hmm. So you start trying to get higher and higher. And along the way, you might get ripped off by a savvy savvy drug dealer, which happens. <laughs> you learn lessons and, you know, yeah. you, you, it's part of the process. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget I lost $500. I got beat for $500 on a purchase of, of crack cocaine. And Lieutenant Billy Farrell looks at me and he goes, don't let it happen again. It happens to all of us. I got pretty good at it and I worked with the local task force and Jimmy and I were extremely successful at Laurel. I worked with the DEA task force and I, I, I worked my way through that. And the DEA guys in Baltimore used to call me just to do undercover. Mm-hmm. And are, are most DEA agents, are they all former cops? Most are. Police are military mostly. Okay. And so the guys I was working with, you know, both of those guys are like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. You should be with the DEA. You need to go, you get paid better money, and they're explaining it all to me. So I applied. And I, the stars aligned on a variety of different things, um, and I got hired. And in January of 1996, I went to the DEA Academy in Quantico, Virginia. Thanks for joining me for part one of my conversation with former DEA agent Tom Sindrick. Join me next time for part two as we travel further down the yellow brick road of his life that eventually led him to the small town of Grayton, South Africa. 
Don't forget to follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates associated with the podcast. You can also email us at podcastcowgirl at gmail.com. See you next time.